Hi, I'm Graham. And I'm Chris. And this is episode 10 of the Pet Shop Boys In-Depth podcast, a truly independent and unofficial homespun affair, especially for Pet Shop Boys fans all over the world. Your donations on the back of the first six episodes helped us buy our tech and pay for our hosting costs, and we're extremely grateful. If you'd like to make a contribution towards helping the podcast stay ad-free, please check out our podcast t-shirt shop. So now that we're self-sufficient, the sky's the limit, and there's still so much to go at. We're mining the best parts of 75 years of combined fandom to shape these well-meaning rambles, stuffing them full of half-remembered PSB facts, theories and memories. If podcasts were albums, then this would be our 10th, kind of like Yes. In fact, very much like Yes, because that's exactly the album that we'll be discussing today. United by a shared love of one band, can two amateurs like us produce a podcast befitting the world's greatest synth-pop duo? There's only one way to find out. So when we asked ideas for new in-depth episodes, one thing that came up a number of times that a number of people suggested was that people liked it when podcasts went through a band's career one album at a time. And I have to say, I like that as well. It's nice and it's neat, but we really wanted in-depth to take a bit more of a fluid approach, be a bit more zigzag if you like, and that would help us explore all the different facets of Pet Shop Boys' career. But having said that, we have decided that eventually we'd like to do a deep dive on all of their albums. So we chatted about which one we'd like to start with. And Graham, you were keen to discuss Yes, weren't you? Why Yes in particular? Well, Yes is probably my most least listened to album, or, or it certainly was up to a couple of months ago. It's the one that I'd maybe written off a little bit, so I was really interested to go and revisit it. So this is kind of shock therapy for you. You're using the podcast as a shock therapy to aid your appreciation. I, I, absolutely, yeah. And I, and I have to say, I would thoroughly recommend this approach. Over the last few months, this is pretty much the one thing that I've listened to with the further listening and the etc. It's almost as if I transported myself back to 2009 and, and was consuming it for the first time yeah so this is like a, a new album for you, <laughs> yeah, for you in that regard it, it is and, and it has really given me a different take on it i think i think you know i've had nearly 15 years of, of pleasure out of, of this album i've always loved it in fact it might be my favorite album since the 80s so i'm really excited to discuss yes i think 2009 this period was a really exciting time for pet shop boys it was a really exciting time to be a fan in many ways it was it was kind of a rebirth for them i think so before we get into all of that we should probably give some facts it's the 10th studio album recorded throughout 2008 released on the 18th of march 2009 and produced by brian higgins and the team at Cenomania. they also co-wrote three of the songs so Love Etc, More Than a Dream and The Way It Used To Be. And I think obviously Xenomania and these co-writes particularly kind of define the album really. So co-writes are quite a rarity for, for Pet Shop Boys. Not something they do very often, right, with other people. I guess uh, What Have I Done To Deserve This is, is maybe their most famous co-write. That was with Ali Willis. And even then I remember that reading that Chris particularly found it a struggle. He found it a struggle to get to a keyboard, famously stormed out as, as part of that. So co-writes are, are unusual for them. Um, they were about 25 years into their career at this point, weren't they? Neil and Chris thinking they, they will have been what early to mid 50s pretty much your age graham <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, not not forgetting that i'm uh, for I'm, that. I'm slightly younger <laughs> it's a really positive and upbeat album isn't it i coming back to it i've been kind of really surprised at that it's an out and out pop album isn't it o- obviously that's encapsulated in the title yes and the artwork that big colorful affirmative tick i think yes as a title it's quite a bold statement really isn't it it's particularly for pet shop boys who for me 
far more defined by no than yes by you know defined by what they won't do what they refuse to do and with yes i think they're purposefully choosing to demonstrate this new positivity and openness embracing new possibilities obviously that's evident in the nature of the collaborative approach with with xenomania where they're essentially saying yes and giving themselves over to some of xenomania's interesting and quite idiosyncratic ways of working i think it's definitely a, a an archetypal pop album you know almost going back to when i was first buying albums it's got three singles obviously the rest are album tracks you know when i was growing up that was the criteria of a pop album you wouldn't want to risk the single straight away because you didn't sure. want to know what the rest of the songs were going to be like so you would you know you'd wait until maybe the third single if you knew that the there was going to be three great songs on there then that was worth investing that kind of full price for an album so i think it definitely ticks that box that's i i was very much the same if you're going to invest your pocket money you wanted to make sure there were three absolute belters on there before you put your hand in your pocket i think all of the albums that i bought at that point in time had to had to pass that criteria so what are you buying at that point ah uh, well what well, when when i with your took, pocket money uh, and with my um three single <laughs> strategy five star i think mel and kim might have qualified for the three singles yeah. rule rick astley oh lots of credible stuff yeah. you, know, as you can as well as we've already stated i'm a little bit older than you so i'm kind of a few years before that so i'm in the Heaven 17, Wham, Howard Jones, those are my early, early singles albums, I would say. Yeah. Coming back to the title, Neil and Chris referenced Yoko Ono's artwork as a source of inspiration for this. Wasn't an artwork I was uh, aware of particularly. It's from 1966, and basically, Yoko put a stepladder in a gallery where visitors were invited to climb the stepladder, clearly, no regard for health and safety, <laughs> and use a, a magnifying glass to read the word uh, yes, which was printed in really small type on a piece of paper hanging from the ceiling. But what it reminded me of was I don't know if you remember Danny Wallace's book Yes Man. Yep. yep. Um, so this was published in. 2005 i think there was even a film a jim carrey film that was um, inspired by it and in the book danny as an experiment basically answered yes to any offers which came his way over the, over the course of a year it basically documents all the possibilities that that opened up and all the changes in, in his life uh, which occurred as a result and it made me think neil's often revisited lyrical ideas around how you can choose your emotional response to different situations so i'm thinking of songs like Happiness is an option from Nightlife or You Choose from Release or even the B-side Miserabilism. So these all explore different emotional strategies. And I see Yes as a title being very much in that same vein where they themselves are experimenting with the notion of saying yes instead of no. Quite a powerful theme, really. And I, I guess also 2008, there's the uh, presidential election, which was the, the kind of Obama campaign that was running with that yes, we can, and you know trying to exude this positivity sure. and this you know that, that hope poster by Shepard Fairey. It's maybe that if you say something over and over again say it often enough then people will or people or yourself will start to believe that I, I do think there was a palpable positivity a, a, around that time and on the album there's plenty of love songs there but they're very much Pet Shop Boys love songs so maybe not always entirely straightforward for me I'd say it's a spiritual cousin of Very I think it's their most pop album since then, since 1993. It's quite different in that respect from Fundamental, which was the, the one that came before, which was not only a very political album, but also one that was steeped in themes of fear, themes of death. You think of the sleeve, you know, the Yes sleeve. It's a million miles away from Fundamental's black sleeve with Neil and Chris lurking in the shadows, top right, Neil with his Undertaker's top hat on. Y yes is uh, uh, thematically and visually pulls apart. Yeah, 
I think it was referred to as the love album in a number of reviews and it's these themes of love and hope and happiness you know without without any irony that I think coming back to now are, are the most surprising because for me around that time I'm experiencing very different emotions I think that 2009 you know the world's about to collapse a banking crisis I think we lost three clients in a week uh, which was about 60% of our business it was a really stressful difficult not positive time at all and maybe not too dissimilar interestingly to, to perhaps where we're at now in terms of mm-hmm. you know where, 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 where the, certainly where the country is and you know for me to 2009 it's about I had to move back home work from home the office that we had was all stacked up in my garage I got a newborn baby it was this sort of strange stressful place and 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 I don't really think I even had the escapism of using music for some reason Mm -hmm. I think that yes got caught up in all that crossfire really you're definitely right it was a tough time for me as well the the financial crisis I think it was a tough time for a a lot of people I work in finance so the banking crisis was very close to home I basically had to up sticks and temporarily move to London away from my two-year-old daughter my pregnant wife to try and keep my job so everything was up in the air all all plans were on hold money was suddenly an issue so I found yes you know a really timely soundtrack particularly given those themes of choosing love over materialism positivity and hope so in that regard it really was a, a tonic for me at that time well we're doing a new album as well aren't we so maybe these themes will be revisited in the new album so uh, in these difficult times what we're all waiting for is another album of positivity and hope or another uh, slab of abject misery <laughs> <laughs> I think what everybody knows about this album is that it was their Xenomania album. They'd written some pop songs, so what would you do with that? Well, you'd take them to the top pop producers of the time. So they packed their bags for Xenomania headquarters, which is at Breachers in Westerham in Kent. So if anybody's listening and not familiar with the geography of the UK or London or or Kent for that matter, if you imagine London and you imagine the M25 that goes around it like a clock face, then round about five o'clock, on that M25 is where this album was recorded. And it's famously the country home that belonged to Alice Liddell, who was the inspiration behind Lewis Carroll's novel Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I found it really interesting to read about the Xenomania work ethic. It sounds fascinating. So Brian Higgins is clearly quite a character totally committed and driven by a desire to you know produce exciting and challenging pop music incredibly competitive too and like neil and chris he's obsessed by hit records and what it takes to make a hit record just check out this quote from brian right so pop is where the cutting edge of music is but it needs to be done with total sincerity and an incredible amount of skill otherwise it doesn't warrant its own existence there is a science to it but there's magic too you have to find the space where art and commerce truly meet in the middle with genuine feeling and sentiment. Higgins sees Xenomania as pop disruptors that not just writing songs here, they're about pushing the envelope, having big hits but on their own terms, doing something really new and, and quite extraordinary. So when Pet Shop Boys, you know, initially went to meet him to discuss Xenomania potentially producing the album, apparently he was going to politely turn them down. So he'd had bad experiences with Franz Ferdinand and New Order in recent years. So other big names come in for a slice of the, the Xenomania action. And these planned collaborations, they come to nothing, basically. And I think from what Brian said, this was because they hadn't given themselves over completely to his way of doing things. 
and it was Neil and Chris's enthusiasm and their commitment to him to doing things the Xenomania way which convinced him to take on the project. Interestingly, he's a lapsed fan, so he calls out Please and Disco and Actually, but he holds the view that they hadn't made a good record since 1989. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and that he'd lost interest in Neil's lyrics because his thinking was that Neil had started to write on more personal topics, so maybe that does fit with behaviour that, you know, maybe Brian's starting to disengage at this point. And Neil's lyrics, you know, they moved away from being these broad subjects that he would cover. And also he was critical of their rhythm programming, that uh, musically that had lost its way as well. And he actually told them as much in this meeting with them. I bet Neil had to swallow hard when he was getting the dose of that feedback. You've got a real headmaster type figure there in, in Brian Higgins. And that's really interesting because we know the dynamic is that Neil and Chris are completely used to calling all the shots, particularly, I would imagine, in, in the studio. Yeah, he's, he's not going to be a big fan of this podcast and uh, and our appreciation of everything post-1989. Uh, <laughs> it's probably surprising or, or, or maybe inevitable that he'll turn up in, in one of Neil's lyrics. We talked in one of the episodes in season one about lyrical compositions and this, this idea of picking these characters. And we know Neil likes to go back and pull people from there. It's compelling character. He's he's definitely um, heading towards a song of his own, I would imagine. Absolutely. So maybe we can help him off with something like that. I was listening to a fan's podcast. They were discussing an opinionated man from my past. (laughs) (laughs) They've got this really interesting writing process where they're in this big house and each member of the team works on backing tracks, chords or beats, tucked away in a different room, writing multiple melodies over the same track or trying them on other tracks. And then Higgins, he's in the process choosing the best bits, brutally rejecting what he doesn't think works, building songs like, you know, like jigsaws, uh, I guess. And Higgins himself admits that doesn't always make for a pleasant experience. You're very publicly being judged, your work's being marked every day. You can bet your bottom dollar that, you know, that's not how a production house like uh, Stock Aiken and Waterman will have worked. So think of day one, Neil and Chris, the work in the Xenomania house, suddenly they're working on different songs, they're in, or different parts of songs in different rooms. That'd be quite different in itself for them almost put to work like jobbing musicians completely new experience for them it must have felt a bit with Brian there it must have felt a bit like joining a cult and this is where to give themselves over to that Xenomania experience and to say yes we know they're great at collaborating they've always done it through all the career they've collaborated in different ways and we know that they recognise that's part of that that trust is absolutely central that's the essence of a, a successful collaboration and being able to produce something that's more than the sum of its parts that transcends something that Pet Shop Boys could do or just Xenomania could do. It's got to be more than something that they could have done independently. I was also thinking it must have it must have felt like being back at Smash It's for Neil a little bit. Being in an office environment with a hierarchy of sorts. Everyone passionate about music, gossiping about music, girls allowed coming and going <laughs> and but all working to this common goal. And don't, don't forget Chris used, when Neil worked at Smash It's, Chris used to go along as well and, and hang out with Neil in, in those early Pet Shop Boys days. It sounds like a crazy place to record an album, doesn't it? And very different to how I would imagine a Pet Shop Boys album's recorded. This this idea, let's say, of different rooms and different processes, a songwriting room, somebody writing melody. I get that that can work in an American record company in the 60s, but this idea that it, it's happening in Kent in the 2000s, it blows my mind. And so many people credited on it. I was looking that there's four people credited on Hotspot. There's 24 people credited wow. on this album. And that's just the nature of how Xenomania works. And of course, Johnny Marr's back, so he makes a welcome return to a Pet Shop Boys album. He kind of had a pattern 
that Johnny played on every other one, didn't he? So the first was Behaviour. He's not on Very, but then he plays on one track up against it on Bilingual. He's not on Nightlife, but then, of course, he's all over release. He's not on Fundamental, but true to form, here he is. Pops up again on, on Yes, but he's not been on one since, has he? We're due the return of Johnny, I think. So Bernard Butler, interestingly, played on Burning the Heather on Hot Spots. Do wonder if they called Johnny first. I wonder if he didn't quite get the call. Um, we know the obviously they're still in touch they're still collaborating he played live with them a number of times most notably I, I guess at to the Teenage Cancer Trust concert at the Royal Albert Hall in, in 2017 but we are due the return of Johnny Marr I do think maybe again the, the new album that's that's imminent you mentioned Stock Aitken and Waterman do you think that Xenomania were the Stock Aitken and Waterman of their day? Definitely so I, I remember during the late 80s and the early 90s Neil and Chris were plainly obsessed with Stock Aitken and Waterman they'd study how they would write songs and churn out hit after hit. Remember, they even originally wanted to record It's a Sin with Stockaken and Waterman. Pete Waterman didn't like the song. Crikey. <laughs> At this point in time, Stockaken and Waterman put out some amazing songs, so tracks like Princesses Say I'm Your Number One, Dead or Alive's You Spin Me Round, Bananarama's Venus, and a song, you know, as revered as being boring, was inspired by the way Stockaken and Waterman songs would change key for the choruses. So they've always been fascinated by these hit factory style production houses, and I do wonder if by working with Xenomania, they were effectively resolving this unfinished business that they'd had, given they never quite managed that yeah, that, that collaboration with Stockaken and Waterman. W- were you a fan at all? You were you too cool for, for, <laughs> for SAW? Oh, well. Well, I'm going to say yes and yes and no to coin a phrase. I, I like their early stuff, that high energy stuff, the Dead or Alive, Venus, Respectable, the first few Rick Astley singles. They're great. Maybe even a couple of the Jason Donovan ones as well. But I have to say, by the time we'd got to sort of 1988, you know, I'm probably not a fan. I'm, like I say, I'm much too cool at that point. <laughs> I'm moving into my indie music phase and sure. I'm buying Pixies Doolittle, which is kind of a little bit too far away from Sonia, I think, at that point. <laughs> and I think they just, they just kind of got a little bit too manufactured and a little bit too soulless and cliched I think for, for, for my liking. I think I was a bit dismissive at the time really. Some of those, you know, the early tracks that I've just mm. listed were, were amazing I bought, as I mentioned, I bought the Mel and Kim album, the first Rick album as you say, it's got those three singles yeah, definitely. but then, you know, my sister became a Kylie fan. I probably started to disconnect at, at that point. Is she a younger sister? Younger sister, uh, that's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. But then they did have a bit of a second purple patch Kylie, so you know, those hits like Hand on Your Heart, Better the Devil You Know What Do I Have to Do? shocked but quantity over quality you're right probably did take over around this point on balance some of their later stuff wasn't quite up to par I did have a Stock Aitken and Waterman song as my first dance at my wedding oh, okay. though, so oh, well, that's... there we go. <laughs> which one uh, Callie and Jason's especially for you so uh, oh. we, <laughs> we we actually that really does date you doesn't it it does doesn't yeah. it well, well this is what 2003 oh, something okay. like that so okay. we actually sang it karaoke style first and then nice. and then moved in and uh, and, and, and did it as a dance <laughs> so uh, I'd like to say that it was ironic and it was a little bit ironic but I mean it is a great that is a great song and I, and I still love that song today anyway 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 we don't need enough of that and then we're back to Xenomania <laughs> at this point Girls Loud are just the biggest pop band in the country aren't they and they're obviously they are musically powered by Xenomania but you know we listed all the stock and one of the songs you know Xenomania are working with Sugar Babes Kylie again mm-hmm. Danny Minogue as well The Saturdays I think even 
Higgins shares a credit on Shares Believe. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard that song. <laughs> it's song obviously for all our extensive research that we do. <laughs> I, uh, I listened to that song again. I don't know what the BPM is on that record. <laughs> it, it's like a drill song. It's, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. it's like, how is this a pop record? It's just manic. So Yes was released about five months after the final Girls Aloud album, uh, which is Out of Control. That album, of course, contains Loving Kind, which is co-written by Pet Shop Boys and Xenomania, and mm-hmm. I think even their version of it appears under Further Listening. And that Girls Aloud album has got The Promise on, which is a great single. So they're still making these great pop records. So I always think of this and that Girls Aloud album as brother and sister albums. Yeah, that, make, that makes good sense. And Xenomania's output is actually relatively low if, when you compare with Stock Aiken and Water. And some of those mid-period Girls Aloud singles are fantastic. You know, tracks like The Show, Something Kinda Ooh, Call the Shots, but particularly Biology, which is such an amazing song, such a bonkers structure. And I think it's that song particularly which was integral to Neil and Chris finding their way to work with Xenomania. Yeah, I mean, Biology is probably one of those dozen or so songs that I would say is in my top three (laughs) (laughs) favourite songs of all time. And again, you know, reasons why maybe I didn't connect with Yes at the time is that I think I was probably initially disappointed that there isn't a Biology on this album. And I think that's what I thought I was going to get when I played it through and obviously not quite that. But I have to say, listening to this over and over again for the last sort of few months, I think it's probably taken me about 15 years to realise that. I think that more than a dream is actually structured quite similar to biology in that it's about four or five songs stitched together which i think is the secret of biology is you never get bored of it it's about uh-huh. 30 seconds then there's something else then there's something else and i think more than a dream kind of follows that same that same pattern so maybe there is a biology kind of hidden in there after all is it cut and shunt when you do it with a car <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's the it's the same uh, philosophy isn't it but yes is literally in my mind an album of two halves they've front loaded it with all of the pop bangers all the singles but then the second half is is a little bit stranger so crashes in with the first single love etc before this record there's only very and release that had employed the same strategy sticking the first single up front it's one of the three xenomania co-writes and you can see immediately you know this is a song that's more than the sum of the parts it's not something either of party could have done in isolation it takes the best of pet shop boys and xenomania it bounces along it's got that you don't have to be chant do any other Pet Shop Boys tracks feature a chant of sorts. I don't know. I, I can't think of one. It's almost rowdy, isn't it? <laughs> it's aggressive. Aggressive by Pet Shop Boys standards. Brash. Is it very heterosexual? I think it's, this is a very heterosexual uh, track. I think everybody in the building apparently is on that song. I think they just rounded everybody up and made them to, shout into to do the it. Shouting. Yeah, yeah. Well, apart from apart from Brian Higgins. <laughs> And I think Chris took himself out in the edit. Uh, uh, yes, I, uh, I can imagine that Chris not wanting to be party to the shouting. And lyrically, we've immediately got one of the album's most prominent themes. So there's a tug of war between the material and the superficial and the things that really matter in life. So this was, to those at all intents and purposes, a banking crisis soundtrack where it's tough getting on in the world. You don't have to be beautiful, but it helps. Quite a hippie sentiment, really, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think this is where the album completely nails its colours to the mass mm. straight away. You know, it's those themes of love and positivity and happiness, and right from the off, we're saying this is what this album's about. Sure, yeah, you're absolutely right. And talking about nailing colours to the mass, you've got that reference in there to Gerhard Richter in the lyrics. He's the German artist whose artwork inspired the colours on the Yes and Love Etc. sleeves, those squares that comprise the X's and the tick his work goes for a phenomenal amount at auction and that's why 
Um, Neil gives him a shout out uh, out here. Well, and I think uh, Farrow then took that that lyric mm. <laughs> and extended that so that those sort of tiny little bursts of colour they're based on. 4,900 colours, which is a grid formation of art that he produced. Mm-hmm. And he did a smaller version of 900 Farben, which was an exhibition at the at the Serpentine, which is 2008, so it's clearly that inspiration. They go for lots and lots of money, don't they? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's always interesting when you go and see where this inspiration for the artwork sure. comes from. The Yes sleeve, it's got shades of introspective, hasn't it, with the graphics and the colours on there, but it's also got the other Imperial album influence, in the white space so it's different for them but it does look very much like a pet shop by a sleeve as well definitely yeah, and i love the way that it was carried into all the other assets so the, the singles and the tour etc they are good at carrying a theme through when they've got a good one and i think they've done that throughout this era definitely right i'm going to go back now to gerhard richter i love it when neil uses the names of real people in his lyrics yeah do you fancy a quiz <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna say yes but Right, here we go. So, I'll say a name, and you tell me if it appears in a Pet Shop Boys song. Okay. So, you get a point if you guess correctly, and a bonus point, Graham. Right. If you can name the song it appears in. Right, I should have brought the bell. I haven't brought the bell. Well, I can operate without (laughs) a a bell. So, let me find my questions, which I've got hidden away on my phone here. So, I'll start. If you think it appears, you think the name, the person, appears in a song... Yep. I want to hear a hearty yes. Right, okay. As in the album title. Yep. And if it doesn't, obviously no. Yeah, yeah okay. okay. Right. So, I've got 15 of these. 15? Yeah, <laughs> so we're going to go quickly. <laughs> right, number one, are you yep. ready? Yeah. King Zog of Albania. Yes. That was that hearty enough. That uh, was hearty enough. Yeah, and I think that's Don Juan. Don Juan, two points already. Oh, right, I think we should end at this point. Uh, so King Zog's back from holiday, of course. Yeah. And King Zog was uh, king of Albania. When did he reign? Oh, is that a lyric? <laughs> no. Uh, oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, 1928 to 1939. All oh, right, so, uh, okay. There wasn't a point So I get bonus anyway. point for Albanian uh, history uh, knowledge. Uh, you've got two points uh, for right. question one. Question two, former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. Oh, oh, I'm going to say no. You're right to say no. Yeah. Very good. Yes. No, but he's the inspiration for four songs, which is maybe why you paused. Yes, so, I think that. I didn't know whether he got an, a, a specific reference. No, so I get along. I'm with Stupid, Legacy, Hoping for a Miracle, all have the spirits of Tony Blair, but none of them mention his name. Number three, left-wing politician Tony Benn. Yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I need to be more forceful. I start off with a yes, and then, the, then there is a... I now need to talk about what it's about having tea with Tony Benn. That's right. And I can't remember what the song is. Well, I'm going to give you the point for that. So it's Love is a Bourgeois Construct. Yes, yeah. Oh, I would so, have been there a long time before. Yeah, so you've got that. Right. Um, former UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. I'm going to say no. You're right to say oh, no. Okay. Of course, her ghost looms large over um, the album, actually. Yes, I'm going to say shopping. Uh, I was wondering whether she was in, uh, if she'd referenced in that. Uh, arguably, uh, a whole album loosely. But, uh, about Thatcherism. Right, you're doing well. I am doing you, well. <laughs> I think you've got uh, top, top marks at the moment. Number five, filmmaker and artist Derek Jarman. Well, I think that the Jarman bit isn't, but Derek is. I think that he is Derek in leopard and yep. denim skin. <laughs> denim and leopard skin. Uh, you're right, you yeah. can have this. Right. Uh, a requiem in denim and leopard skin. Of course, 
also a significant collaborator for them, the designer of their 1989 tour. Yes. Yes, he's uh, Adam's inner German film. So that was... Ah, does it say German film, does it? Yeah, so it's not Derek, it says German. Adam's inner German film, which was reference to Adamant appearing in the 1979 Derek German film Jubilee. Uh, Okay. I'm still claiming you've got full points. Yeah, I'm impressed with myself, to be honest. Number six, singer Bing Crosby. Yes, and I think he's referencing he doesn't snow at Christmas. Yes. He doesn't always snow at Christmas. Two points. Next one, singer Madonna. Well, I want to say... Well, I mean, I'm guessing that you're not going to allow me she's Madonna. We're not saying that's canon, are we, really? I don't think. So I'm going to say... I'm going to say no, because I can't think of anything other than that. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. I will give you a point because you said she's Madonna. She's also referenced in Tall Thin Men uh, from the musical, right. All right, which yeah. is uh, on one of their further listening discs, their, their demo. Never ever wanna listen to Madonna singing "Don't Cry for Me." Argentina. That's right, it does. Yeah, I mean that's niche, isn't it? To not, I'm, I'm, I, well, I think it's vaguely acceptable to not get that one. This no, is the right. leading Pet Shop Boys fan podcast in, in depth, Graham. <laughs> I know. It, some bit, be... some things are niche. I know. I'm gonna be evicted from it. <laughs> so you've dropped one mark. Right. Singer Robbie Williams. I'm going to say no. You're right to say no. Yeah. Number nine, another singer, Luciano Pavarotti. I'm going to say no because I can't bring it, but I feel like they will have done. But I'm going to say no. You're going to kick yourself. Oh, I know. Go on. Pavarotti in the park. Then you walk back up the strand. Oh, of course. I'm I'm going to... What's the song? Uh, it's the theatre. The theatre. Crikey. Yes, of course. No, that's a... Oh, that's a good one, that. Oh, well done. Okay. Designer Isimayaki. Yes. Correct. And I'm, I'm all... I'm, I'm, Pavarotti's just yeah, he's diminished you, all my confidence. Uh, oh, I can't get that now. Go on, I'm going to give... I'm going to uh, kick myself. Okay, that's... Uh, do you know, I'm stopping scoring here, but uh, yeah. you, you're doing well. It's flamboyant. It is flamboyant. Yeah, I couldn't. I, knew, I can picture this, Lee. Collectors can't. wear black clothes like Issey Mayaki. Yes, yeah, yes. Uh, another designer, Philippe Stark. Yes, I'm going to say... Well, it's definitely yes. It's on Close to Heaven, and it is... Is it Call Me Old Fashioned? Yes, well yeah. done. Yeah. Prada and Porsche and Philippe Stark. Yeah. So uh, he's in... Bob Saunders' list of things that he collects. Playwrights now. Right. Harold Pinter. Yes. You're right to say <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's a B-side. No, is it's it not. not. Which one is it? I, don't, I can't get that. Uh, that's up against it. Such a cold winter with scenes as slow as Pinter. Yeah, uh, yeah. William Shakespeare. I'm going to say no. He's mentioned in the re-recorded version of Discoteca where Neil sings, understand the man who could talk in tongues and you're ready to speak like a Shakespeare. Right, when you say re-recorded version. It was the version that is on one of the further listings. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kind of, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll send you back to school on yeah. that one. Two more. All right, okay. Um, Chris Lowe. Oh, well, I know what your next one's going to be as well. Oh, I'm going to say no. You're right to say no. Right, okay. Last one, oh. then you can... Uh, then I can breathe again. <laughs> breathe again. Neil Tennant. I don't like that you've left it last. Uh, I'm going to have to say no because he's not coming back but and, and i know how you work so i know that there, i know that he's <laughs> if i say no and i say yes i can just do it in the edit so uh, well I'll, i'm gonna say no but it's gonna be yes right i'm gonna try some spanish here padoname oh, me llamo neil oh, yeah okay yeah 
I'll give you that one. That's I good. guess he's not calling it. He's not Neil Tennant. He's Neil. So yes, he was. Right. Um, he mentions himself by name yes. in single bilingual. Yeah. No, no, that's a, that's a fair point. Well, I, I stopped doing the scores because I realised about halfway through that it was fairly pointless. <laughs> but yeah, I think you acquitted yourself admirably there. Uh, yeah, I think I did better than I probably would have uh, expected I, to do. I look forward to you uh, seeking yes. your revenge in yes, the future. I will do that. Podcast. I'm definitely going to do that. Yeah. So, Chris, what are your favourite songs on this album? Well, I think my favourite's King of Rome. Um, only Pet Shop Boys can produce a track like King of Rome. Elegant, so beautiful, understated. I guess it's a ro- you know it's a romantic track. It's a study of loneliness. They almost, interestingly, almost called it the King of Pop when it would have been more of a study of Michael Jackson, which I think is quite interesting. Again, pulling out those themes of loneliness. I mentioned it earlier, but I think for me, I have just got this newfound appreciation for More Than A Dream. Mm-hmm. For, I, I think it's a standout track on the album, and that key change in the middle that leads into that sort of driving through the night is brilliant. I can just listen to that over and over again, which, in, in fairness, I have done for the last few months. <laughs> I think that that is a classic Pet Shop Boys record. Driving through the night, that's I Want to Love, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's a straight rip from Please. We were talking about the uh, Obama influence before, weren't we? And I think this is the Obama track, if there is one. It's one of the most optimistic songs here. It's about hope, anticipation. I think that was felt not just in America, but for a short time, maybe a very short time at least, that did spread around the world, and I think this track does embody that in a way. It's an optimistic song, and, and I think that's when I'm most attuned to as a band, is that's what I want, really. I love an optimistic, happy, uh-huh. happy-go-lucky song. Sure. I also love Vulnerable. I think it's one of their forgotten gems. Apparently, their global head of A&R thought it should be the first single. Not quite sure about that. It sounds very French, but then it's also got that Spanish guitar sample in there. Neil said the song sung from the point of view of a woman that they both know well someone whose outer shell is very strong and aggressive but inside they're really vulnerable in the song the person singing to their partner i've always wondered you know who is that person i wondered is it janet street porter then we know that they both know her well to me at least she would seem to fit the bill no that would be really i think really interesting if it was yeah it would definitely be interesting to know who that who that was and she definitely fits that bill i'm also going to call out the way it used to be so the last of the three co-writes that we haven't mentioned yet i think the best one again achingly beautiful tucked away on the b-side of these more these stranger songs amazing melodies definite example of a song that you know neither party could have produced alone another love song it's a complete love story within the lyrics there's a split but definitely a happy ending in keeping with yes's upbeat nature and there's an amazing synth solo two-thirds of the way through it's such an electronic album i think that's something that maybe i hadn't quite appreciated the electronics in there i love all of those little layers and hooks i think chris said in terms of the that there is there's just a complete mixture of electronic noises on there and real instruments and they're all just through so many filters and gone through so many processes that i don't think anybody knows anymore which was the original and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and which is a sample so do you 
Do you think they chose the right singles on the album? Well, Love Etc. is a definite single. That had to be the comeback tune. Apparently, Brian was keen that they nailed that first. Let's get the single done first before we work on any of the rest of the album. So that track was their initial focus. All Over the World must have been on the cards as the second single. They even included it in the medley when they played at the Brits. Obviously, it was reworked. It was included on the Christmas EP at the end of the year. I do think it was a missed opportunity to put out in its own right. I would have loved an All Over the World second single those verses are fantastic definitely a Bowie feel mm. and a classic Pet lyric about the power of pop music it's in the same vein of hit music and it's alright and vocal it's a song about pop songs instead they put out Did You See Me Coming apparently Parlophone thought it would get a good chance of airplay definitely a good choice definitely single material loads of Johnny on the track Big and Summery another of the album's big positive love songs strangely and maybe this is where we know it wasn't originally supposed to be a, a single it was included along with Vulnerable as part of the Love Etc digital bundle and it was a track that was on the story CD that was given away free with the Daily Mail it obviously initially wasn't anticipated as being a single or they wouldn't have been essentially giving it away for free made number 21 in the UK did get some airplay particularly on Radio 2 in in the UK so that does feel like a a respectable result in the end yeah I thought it was another (laughs) kind of slightly underwhelming video which probably didn't help it and we talked about the squares being used throughout the entire campaign they seem to be not involved in any of the videos I don't know whether that's because the videos are rushed or because they weren't planned like you say it wasn't maybe wasn't planned I think also and again one of the themes that we've talked about on a couple of podcasts is we started to move into this slightly strange time of, of digital and the streaming and you wonder if bands have sort of forgotten how to promote or they've lost confidence or they suddenly haven't got quite as large promotional budgets for things. I, I, I love it as a, as a song. I think it works really well but it, it was quite a strange time wasn't it? I mean, you mentioned the story CD that was given away with the Daily Mail and I think they gave away a Prince album that Prince That's solely right. put out through that newspaper yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, he'd record an album they'd just give him 250000 for it and put it out. It was quite a bizarre time that nobody really knows how I think how to promote any records anymore. Yeah, it's definitely the music industry trying to get to grips with what you do with a physical product in a, an age of streaming, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. You, you can tell that they pulled out all the stops with the Did You See Me Coming yeah. single package. They had those three B-sides on there. Three B-sides, three extra tracks after the event. It's a fan mm-hmm. favourite. The former Enfant Terrible, Up and Down. They've done their own mix of Did You See Me Coming, so the epic PSB possibly more mix. Another mix from Unicorn Kid. Richard X. Yeah. Mix the way it used to be for the package. Apparently, he got in touch specifically to ask if he could mix that track. And then you've got the Brits medley as part of the digital bundle as well. So they're definitely going all out to make sure that they secured a hit. You know, that's one hell of a pop package. I think that's as good a pop package as they've put out. Yeah. Possibly for any of the singles and, and certainly since and it, it's classic, isn't it? you get some great mixers, you get some B sides, it's it's back to our value for value for money, value for money yeah. uh, side of things is that that actually is a, a, a great package and, 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 and accessible as well. It's not twenty club mixers that all roughly sure. sound the same. They are those mixers the Unicorn Kid mix and the, the possibly more are just great staples really. It's sometimes they really do pull out the stops and you do sense that they realise that this could be hit or miss so they need to do throw everything they can particularly to get fans to buy it as well as the wider audience they also put out Beautiful People as a single in Germany don't really know how well that did <laughs> lyrically similar theme to Love Etc but from a different perspective this time it's about someone imagining using celebrities to escape their everyday life big 60s production fantastic strings Johnny on 
guitar and harmonica. It's a big sounding track. Yeah, and I think they wrote it for Jonathan Harvey's That's TV true. series, didn't they? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but didn't use it for whatever reason and got the guy from The Feeling to record it oh, instead. Okay. Uh, not one I ever watched. No, I'm not sure either. I was looking at it and I was thinking, I don't think I don't even really remember this at all. Maybe because they didn't do the theme for it, perhaps. Uh, I have to say, there's the demo version of mm-hmm. Who Pull People that appears on the further listening i really like that i, I sort of find it quite interesting that it, it's, it's much more sparse and it, it seems to have quite a lot of warmth to it and it almost feels like it could have sat on release it's got that sure. sort of instrumentation element song. wondering if you know we've talked about this transition from fundamental to yes that sort of maybe that sort of fundamental was a little bit trevor horny and that you know they're, they're opening this up for new ways and that i guess we would come from here then onto elysium we're starting to use instruments there is that kind of warmth within the songs and I'm wondering if this is the first part of that part Pandemonium that must have been another single contender definitely single material and originally written for Kylie apparently another link to Stock Aiken and Waterman there it's an out and out pop track finally you can't walk past Legacy which is the final song and again I keep talking about how it passed me by a little bit at the first half I think the one song that didn't was Legacy and I think that's because it, it's so different to the rest of the album sure it's different uh, to everything <laughs> well absolutely done. yeah and, and, and I love that I love that It's I love its strangeness and who else would record a song like this let alone put it on an album and you know he's even banned in China I believe because it talks about governments falling and uh-huh. things but you know i just i love its quirkiness and it's that typical well not typical but that that ability from the band to sort of surprise you with something that's that's really nice it's a you know it's one of neil's deeper lyrics isn't it it's it's a tony blair track so inspired by tony blair where blair's clearly wrestling with his past and guilt as he leaves office but there's hope here you know this isn't a, another song with some optimism in there it's dark but you'll get over it it's also musically <laughs> ambitious and odd that you know it's got those dissonant chords there's even a waltz <laughs> uh, definitely a psb first so another moment of strangeness within the context of a pop record which is obviously quintessentially Pet Shop Boys in itself it's interesting reading literally they definitely had some frustrations about the reaction to the album the lack of radio airplay I think they felt that they truly pulled out all the stops and produced what was a huge a commercial album got the best pop songwriters coupled with the the day's greatest pop production team yeah I, I, I think I just think it's sat in the middle, you know, it's it's not quite Girls Aloud Radio 1 pop. Radio 2 at that time was still a little bit kind of MOR and it didn't really know what it was doing. So we're talking UK here, but, you know, Six Music, Very Guitars and Britpop. And I know that Xenomania were kind of darlings of The Guardian and Pop Justice, but I don't know quite how household names they were as a kind of production house. Obviously, everybody knows the band, but whether or not they were quite the, the pull and the draw. It's pop, but it's just quite... quite undefinable pop really I think and it doesn't quite fit into one of those specific pigeonholes I think it could possibly have got lost as an album and I can find that frustration around lack of airplay I think that it was definitely helped by that Brit's Outstanding Contribution Award that can happen just before the album was released that's my memory that there was quite a fanfare and quite a buzz around them at that time there was the single there was the album coming out there was this notable Brit's Outstanding Contribution award what a performance that was on the night well that was a really exciting night to be a fan of course the medley that they played what, what was that 12 minutes of, of their music that was their first collaboration with Stuart Price he stitched that together clearly that was the beginning of quite a fruitful partnership for them yeah and, and, and I find that kind of quite 
quite interesting that clearly spent 12 months in in the house of pop and yet for such a, a high profile event and publicity opportunity they go to a different producer which seems quite strange at the time and you know I mean they brought in Lady Gaga and Brandon Flowers as well but I remember being really excited about that and I think it was like you say it was a great performance I just wonder whether or not actually what Stuart Price did deliver is he actually did deliver pop it was sure. 10 12 minute summary you know it was 25 years of their music that you know almost like that is pop yes is this maybe new modern type of pop but actually proper hardcore pet shop boys pop was in that 10 minute summary uh-huh. where he's just cutting up 30 yeah. seconds of i mean i don't know have you ever counted how many songs are on that uh-huh. but there's i mean they're, they're all there aren't they <laughs> interesting as well that they'd have they go through this album with with xenomania they'd get stuart price in for the Brits. They'd then go to LA <laughs> to do Elysium. Sure. And, and then about three years later, they go, oh, let's get Stuart Price back in and we'll record three albums. It, it was all just a strange time, wasn't it? I guess he did the music as well for the Pandemonium tour. And the other bit about the performance, I think it was the first time that maybe we got to see some of this great clothing that they wore for the Yes campaign. So Neil in that conical Gareth pew coat i remember thinking clothes were back yes was the first time <laughs> since maybe those uh, the amazing nightlife outfits that that they were wearing new and it exciting clothes they look great in those shots but i think they truly thought that their age was counting against them that it's that yeah that's why they didn't get the airplay i think that was that was the kind of radio one radio two thing wasn't it it was radio two it, it just that was that was old. Radio One wanted to go really new, so they just kind of fell in that gap for a while, like mm. like like lots of bands did, really. So shortly after, well, I say I shot the, the the Christmas EP, which I think you mentioned earlier. That that was the last top forty single that they had. We should say to date. Sure, <laughs> to date. <laughs> yeah, as we await some new singles and things. I guess this yes period in itself was an end of an era as well, to a degree. I think when it came out, there were kind of quite optimistic that it would be kind of quite a high kind of placing album but I think there was issues around barcodes and packages released early and so on which jeopardised bits of that so I'm sure some people got shouted at for that. Did it go in at number four? I think it, it would so? have It would have hit number two, I think, if these issues hadn't shown themselves, but they had to make do with number four, right. uh, four instead. Yeah. And maybe not selling £300-plus versions of, of exclusive versions the, of it the, as well. The Vinyl Factory <laughs> yes. edition. Yeah. Now, I didn't buy that at the time. Did you buy that? Oh, I didn't, no. I'm I, 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 I do. not sure that met my economic situation oh, well, at Well, it would have been a good investment. Well, if yeah. You had, so I think, I think some of the latest copies have gone for as much as six and a half thousand pounds so that 300 pounds does look like a, a good investment in in retrospect you just would never sell it though would you that would be the thing i don't think he said i don't if they were to do them now i'm not sure i think they would cost more than 300 pounds in the first instance Maybe, wouldn't yeah they? perhaps so yeah um i mean anything that comes in a smoke perspex box with a magnetic fastening really should have had a place on my shelves i i do wish i'd bought that at the time I must admit, it does look good. But like I say, like we said, everything from that period did look really, really nice. And of course, in addition, the special edition, yes, etc., you've got a whole other disc. I love it when they give you a whole other album, essentially for free or another couple of quid more. So you've got etc., which is a partner disc of dub mixes it's also got that first track this used to be the future but then the bulk of it these amazing dub mixes that xenomania did that this album's inspired by human leagues remix album love and dancing 
soft cells non-stop ecstatic dancing maybe their own original disco album so these kind of seminal 80s remix albums that, that we love this must be the future of course features phil Oakey himself from human league i think chris is singing on there as well in yeah, kind of, sure. albeit heavily processed yeah I think they were going to ask Bernard Sumner to sing Chris's parts, but were worried it might have been a bit too 80s. Or, although when you hear that song, it's probably the most 80s thing that they've, <laughs> that they've recorded. You know, certainly given uh, Phil's presence on there. Uh, I mean, I love it, and I think I would have loved it more if it was on the main album. I don't know necessarily where it would have fit. Maybe they were just worried it was a bit long. I think that's the case. I think they were going to put it in the track order. Uh, the original track listing had it on the second side with, with all of those other unusual sides. But yes, they did think when they listened back to the original playlist for Yes that they thought it was too long. They chopped that song out. And also, they had their 12 squares on the tick on the cover. They took one of those squares off as well, so it was 11, and they liked the tick more, the shape of the tick more with 11 squares as well, so maybe that visual aspect sealed the deal and consigned the fate of the track to the etc. disc. Yeah, I mean, I love it, and I, I think it's such a shame that there'll be large numbers of people kind of casual listeners that will will never have heard it and that would would absolutely love it and those dub mixers are great and it's only recently the last two or three years that i actually realized what a dub mix was i always just used to think it was marketing speak for uh, an instrumental and and actually no they're they're much more than that for years i shunned whenever i'd look on the back of the 12 inch and it would say dub mix i'd think oh that's just that's just the instrumental no i'm I'm not going to go for that there's a whole world of dub mixes that are just waiting for you now then well like i say since i found that out i think somebody online was like quite angry <laughs> I did I went through them all and no you're right there are some 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 great dub mixers out there I love from the disc the magical dub of of more than a dream that's a fantastic track the actually they used it in the end to open the pandemonium tour before it kind of seeped into heart and if I play the track now that takes me right back to those um concerts also love the public eye dub of vulnerable that's sublime. Apparently Neil and Chris chose the tracks for Xenomania to mix. Xenomania produced the first versions. Neil and Chris listened to those and then phoned Brian up with, with their amends, with their changes. Get the impression that it was a, a little bit confused to have his work marked in that way. I think they were just trying to get their own back out there for some eight months of recording comments and things like that. I'm sure they just wanted to just get their own back and sort of go, could try harder. Can we have a little bit more bass or go back and do a new, uh, record a new keyboard part for this, please? So did you see, I take it you saw the Pandemonium tour then? I, it, for me, it's the only tour that I haven't seen, well, other than Discovery, but you know, I think it was a combination of kind of financial pressures of the business, maybe a kind of slightly lukewarm reaction to the album, and, and perhaps more importantly, babysitting a, a one and a four-year-old. But yeah, it was kind of a little bit off. I did see it a few times uh, as a tour, so I, I made up for your um, missing <laughs> ticket sales. Uh, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've seen it since. I do think it's yes. one of one of their greatest shows. Truly creative. Those cubes, so the motif from the sleeve that they play through into the so I think that's a brilliant design idea. Fantastic set list, two divided by zero, part of a section, a New York section that kind of celebrated their early electro sound. Amazing to hear that track live, fantastic version. Uh, also ballads like Do I Have To and King's Cross. Amazing from a creative perspective. 
fantastic from a set list perspective as well. It's quite interesting because they started the tour playing smaller venues. So I saw them at Manchester Apollo, where the same venue as, as they played on the release and fundamental tours. And then by the end of the year, so again, 2009, so maybe this is following the Brits' exposure, they were back in Manchester, but playing much larger arena. So bearing in mind, the arena is a venue that they last played 10 years previously, so 19... 99 on the nightlife tour and at that point they had to curtain large sections of empty seats off so you know they've come a long way mm. since 1999 there was no curtain uh, in operation that and there hasn't been since so i think this tour marked a bit of a turning point for them as a live act i do i remember in those arena dates the christmas dates they performed it doesn't often snow at christmas which i I don't think they managed to, um, I guess it's a seasonal thing, but they don't <laughs> play that very often. And then I had a right journey home because I came out of the venue, and guess what? It had been snowing at Christmas, <laughs> and then I had to make my way back over the M62, which listeners may not know that that's the highest motorway in, in the UK, or certainly the highest motorway in England. Make my way back home via that, and then literally sliding my way down uh, on the on the back roads home. I actually remember that night for as much as my <laughs> dri- driving skills as for the concert. I've I've done that journey after a gig in Manchester, and it's there's nothing worse than kind of being at a kind of euphoric great gig coming out and realizing that there's snow on the ground and you're thinking yeah and then I've got to go up into the hills yeah. and 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 just trundling behind big lorries in there the tire marks that they've made just so that you you're not slipping and sliding everywhere yeah I did that in my in my little old mini once upon a time it's it is a nightmare of a journey so again, I guess I'm crossing the Pennines, but I saw it in Blackpool the following summer. Always exciting to see them play in Chris's hometown. They played, again, thinking about exclusives, they played Glad All Over there, which I think was a bit of an anthem for uh, your the football. Um, yeah, for Blackpool. Uh, uh, yeah, a bit of an anthem for Black- Blackpool <laughs> FC. I think that might have been the track's only live outing. But then they did record it in quite a different form for the Together single as well. I think Blackpool got promoted possibly to Premier League that season, so that's possibly what it was that- that's what the celebration yeah. was, and I, yes, obviously Arsenal, the Chris's team, aren't they? But I think he's got a soft spot for his hometown yes, team. Yes, definitely. So you saw it three times then that tour. Yes, I think I, I think three times, maybe more, but let's not go into that. But one thing that was quite exciting was, and this was me back when the album first came out. This is me. You'll remember it's the banking crisis, yeah. and I'm stuck down in London. Now I did play that to my advantage. You're keeping the country going. Keeping the country going. <laughs> keeping my job going but it was the day that yes was released so pet shop boys performed for channel 4's album chart show at at coco uh, club in camden in london so i went along to the recording of this show which was quite exciting in itself they performed two songs they looked amazing neil in the bowler hat and his yes clothes i remember chris dancing before the cameras rolled and then obviously as soon as they started rehearsing he was stock still behind his keyboard again so they played Love Etc, so probably the first time that they'd stood and recorded that at all. And then this bandstorming version of Always On My Mind, which they had footage played behind them of Blackpool Pleasure Beach, a bit of Chris running down the uh, Clacton seafront from It Couldn't Happen Here. Some of the bits, I think a lot of this was coming from A, a Life in Pop. I do remember as well Chris tripping over a lead on the on the way out. <laughs> Thankfully, he didn't uh, go flat on his face, but it sounded amazing, sounded great in that small club. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And, and I... I think I was in a rush anyway, but I thought I'm not going to hang around and see the other acts. But I will try and uh, say hello to them at the stage door. Got out and uh, sure enough, there were a few fans waiting there. Managed to catch them both leaving. Neil, I'd have 
copy of Yes with me, so it was nice to get that signed by Neil on the day that it came out. Unfortunately, Chris wasn't quite um, saying yes. <laughs> I don't think he said no, but uh, I'm sure for good reason he had to uh, he had to leave at that point. So Chris was a little bit more no than yes on that day, which is absolutely fine. Absolutely. I think as an album for me it's a real triumph it's it's big it's bold it's positive it's a masterclass in how to collaborate where both parties get the best out of each other and as a result make something truly unique and something that either party couldn't have produced without the other it's pop definitely not bland it's interesting it's strange and it's very electronic plus strings <laughs> plus guitar maybe maybe the kitchen sink as well and i think that's maybe where you had a, a slight I- issue with it yeah I, like i say i don't really know what i had a problem with and but i have to say i'm really glad that i have gone back and put the effort and, and kind of reappraised it and and i think that has taken a little bit of quite a lot of effort really because i think normally you come to something and it's a blank piece of paper and you can just formulate your views on it i think because i had got this build up because of that i've had to overcome that as well as sort of start enjoying it sure. but i do think that this is a massive underrated period we haven't really even talked about the further listening that's a triple cd of content all the b-sides and extra tracks that are on there which are all great and and i think what i have come to is that even when I've sort of talked about this being a kind of less listened to album, it's only because that's such a high bar with everything else. Sure. And, you know, and I think that's what I'd almost filed it under as well. Maybe it's the one that I like the least. But really, over the last couple of months, I've, I've really got into this now and I'm now finding that when, you know, if I've got songs shuffling and one of those songs comes up, it, it's mm. kind of completely reappraised it. And I'm, I'm kind of, oh, this is now starting to remind me of summer, summer 2023. And, and, I, and I do think that Did You See Me Come In and More Than A Dream are top 20 Pet Shop Boys tracks. And I'd like to think that when they next mix up the Dream World set list, that they could maybe find a place for those because I think that they would fit in there. They fit in the, the greatest hits. I know they're maybe not quite, but they're upbeat, they're, they're optimistic and certainly would fit in that, that Dream World set list, which we've talked about before, is, is so upbeat and uplifting. I don't think they've got any Yes songs in there. They haven't even got Love Etc, have they? No, I don't no. think so. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm, you know, I'm really glad that you've <laughs> and you found fondness for the album. It's an album full of songs about love and relationships and boys and girls and hope and pop music. <laughs> All the big important Pet Shop Boys subjects. It's an album that's cut through with a belief that things can change where ex-lovers will come back to you, you know, cause a riot, turn your life upside (laughs) down. And no matter what hardship you face, you'll ultimately get over it. It's an album of love and hope and an album that itself embodies the trust that I think was really at the core of the collaboration with Xenomania. You mentioned the extra further listening discs there. And right at the end of those, kind of tucked away, there's these three tracks that they wrote for inclusion in the stage adaptation of David Alman's children's book, My My Dad's a Birdman. I've always thought, you know, these are strange curios, these tracks. They've got you know songs about nappies and dumplings and fishes ears and sharks bellies did you did you ever see the stage production i didn't know but i've i've, I've got the book and you know I, I love that and i love the stories and i love that, that i maybe thought initially were were neil Tenant's lyrics are actually just lyrics that are lifted just straight from you read this book and there are these just lyrics come to life through all the characters yeah well i've read the book more recently as well and 
I think once you get past the character names like <laughs> Dorin Doody and Mr. Poop, things get interesting. So for anyone that hasn't read it, it's about a girl, Lizzie, who finds herself looking after her dad, Jackie, after the death of her mother. And he dreams of competing in this great human bird competition. But really, it's a children's book that, as with all the best children's books, it's tackling some big themes here. Some birds and human flight, the basically metaphors for love, transcending grief and death. It's very much a story you don't have to scratch the surface much before you you find it's a story about love trust and hope exactly the same themes that pulled out from revisiting yes so i'm going to stop thinking of these songs as being strange curios anymore they make complete sense within the context of this particular period of psb output and it's great, the, the book as well, I mean, the, the songs that Neil sings in his Geordie accent, and actually yeah. when you read the book in a Geordie accent, it, it, it kind of brings all this to life, and you, you're absolutely right about those those themes that are the same themes that are in the book as, as, as across the album. You know, I would urge anybody, go and read it. it, it we're sort of saying it's a children's book. It's probably a, an older children's book, sure. I would say. It's not 20 pages of just a little bit of time. You know, it's quite a complicated involved story really but it's really interesting and certainly if anybody has got young children i would urge them to use that as an excuse to go and buy it and if not just to uh, to buy it and have a nice evening just a, a nice hour and a half read and, and and sort of imagining it soundtracked by these great pet shop boy songs as well when you read the booklet for further listening for yes chris says that he thought they were running a bit flat before yes and that working with xenomania recharged their batteries neil regards it as the beginning of a new phase i thought that was really interesting clearly wasn't the commercial smash that they were hoping for you know and and we've sort of talked about that it was the you know the last of their top 40 hits but we keep talking about this pivoting idea and and, and maybe in itself it was kind of quite liberating for them you know it maybe made them think well we don't need the charts maybe that's not the the most important thing maybe actually just enjoying ourselves doing what we want to do taking a few risks was perhaps more important for them yeah maybe this is the point in time where they stop measuring their success by chart positions quite so much i think what's most inspiring is the way that they embrace the nature of the collaboration with xenomania so they said yes to doing things differently they open themselves up to new ideas and ways of working and that can't always have been easy you know 25 years into their career i found that quite inspirational really at the time and since then i've tried to say yes more in my own life as well doing this podcast for example graham it's uh <laughs> i wouldn't normally do this kind of thing you know <laughs> Shop Boys In Depth is an independent podcast written and produced by Sykes Payne for F19 Media, with music by Paul Jackson. Each episode, we're calling out and thanking some of our supporters who've kindly helped us to cover recording and hosting costs. So huge thanks to Leon from Realisation Music, Sydney Pruanto, Tom Brown, and Marlene Popoff. Follow us on Twitter at Pod or via our Facebook page for extra content and to be the first to hear about new episodes. You can help keep these podcasts ad-free by buying one of our exclusive in-depth podcast t-shirts. You'll find all the links in the podcast information or on our socials. And if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe, and we'd love it if you wrote us a review.